Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Fleming, Warden of Cranmer Hall, and it's my privilege to bring to you some of the most interesting theological thinkers today. If you enjoy Talking Theology, do subscribe at your favourite podcast provider. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Talking Theo and share on social media. Thank you for listening. Now, on to today's episode. How did Jesus and the early church engage with people of other faiths? What does the Christian idea of salvation look like in a multi-faith context? Why is being a better neighbour part of living out our Christian calling? And how might the Christian mandate for justice challenge the church's inaction on discrimination and prejudice? Welcome to this episode of Talking Theology. In today's show, I'll be talking to Dr. Gerard Charles. Gerard spent 10 years working in China connected to a missionary society and undertook doctoral research on the challenges of identity for Chinese Muslims. He now lectures on cross-cultural ministry, including at Cranmer Hall. And our question today is, how do we live faithfully in a multi-faith world? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Gerard Charles, welcome to Talking Theology. Thank you very much for having me. It's a joy to be here. Gerard, tell us a little bit about your journey of engaging with other cultures and faiths. What's your journey look like into this role you have now where you teach others about this important topic? Mm, thank you. So I came to become a Christian out of a Catholic background uh, when I was about 20 years old and was living in Dundee in Scotland at the time. And I had one of those experiences that missionaries would talk about as a call from God, a very clear call from God, an unmistakable call from God to go to China, to work in China. And so I left my secular employment when I was 28 and went off to Bible college in Glasgow. And the very first module that I took was um, a placement to engage with people of other faiths. And I was uh, on a placement with a mosque in Dundee, where I got on really well with this Pakistani imam. And I just got a real immediate joy at hearing about and sharing with a man from another faith background. I couldn't make any sense of how that fitted with a call to China, because I knew very little about China, not realizing that when I finally arrived in China, I would be living at a place where Chinese Muslims and Tibetan Buddhists and Han Chinese would all be meeting, kind of like a crossroads, a trading post. And so I find myself living and serving in China amongst several diverse, distinct faith groups. And so really it started from when I was very first called, and then it really developed as I went through my life and work in China. And I know since those first experiences, Gerard, you've actually researched uh, other faiths, and in particular, the challenges of identity for Chinese Muslims. How did that academic research feed this question and continue to deepen your interest in it? Yeah, so living in China for all those years, we lived there for 10 years, you come face to face. Uh, well, at first, you come face to face with 
something that's so utterly other. Muslim Chinese, just very, very different from Han Chinese. And then you would see Tibetan Buddhists, very, very different from the other two groups. And yet when you start to get to know your friends who are, who are Muslim Chinese, you discover a level of diversity uh, within Chinese Islam that you never encountered before, you never even thought of. And you discover that there are layers of identity questions that both Muslims in China and Tibetans in China face. Questions of identity, am I Chinese? Because I'm a citizen of the People's Republic of China. But ethnically, I don't look like the Han Chinese, the dominant 90% of the people. My roots are different. My language, my mother tongue is different. My religious background is different. And so it really made me think that particularly Chinese Muslims really kind of sat as an interface between two huge civilizational influences. One would be the Confucian, communist, Chinese worldview, and the other being the global Islamic worldview. And they really sat between these two huge civilizational influences. And it was fascinating to explore through friendship, through then doctoral research interviews, how they identified, how they thought about a coherent, consistent identity. Are you Chinese? Are you Muslim? Are you Muslim Chinese? Are you Chinese Muslim? And it's a fascinating area to study. Now, having come back to the UK, we face something very similar in Britain with British Muslims. Are you British? Are you Pakistani? Are you Kashmiri? And this area of exploring your identity, I find so fascinating that I'm continuing my research, but now based here in the Northwest. And we're able to draw on your academic as well as practical experience today, Gerard. We're looking at the topic of engaging, living, befriending, working with people of other faiths. And I wonder if I could take us back, first of all, to the world of the New Testament, a world in which, of course, faiths of different perspectives lived alongside one another. What are the different ways in which we see early Christians engaging with people of different faiths? And I guess what might we at least draw from their experience? although our world, of course, is very different to theirs. What might you say to that? I go straight back to Jesus and who Jesus encountered. It's quite often remarked, isn't it, that Jesus is very clear that he is called to the lost sheep of Israel. It seems kind of some sort of, not quite restrictive, but very focused ministry to the Jewish people, to Israel's sheep, he would refer them to. And yet, there are encounters that he has, aren't there, with the Roman centurions, with Syrophoenicians, with other Canaanites. But the way he interacts with them, sometimes I find quite challenging when I read the gospel accounts. Of course, he comes to open up the kingdom of God for Jews and for Gentiles, makes that very clear, particularly in John's gospel. And then when you move into the early church, you move into the Acts of the Apostles, you see this, this progression, as Acts 1 would talk about, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, and the different encounters, uh, both culturally, uh, but also religiously, that that would mean. And so there are several famous encounters that both Peter and Paul have in Acts. Peter with, the, 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 with Cornelius, and having to have a whole paradigm shift in how he thinks about Gentiles. And then Paul, of course, um, encountering Greek culture, in encountering kind of Roman emperor worship, 
being mistaken as Zeus and Hermes and having people bow down to him. But I think most people would go straight to Acts chapter 17 when they think about this question, how Paul approached the Areopagus in that discourse in Athens, and how he begins from a position of recognizing where they are. And I think this is a wonderful thing to reflect on for anybody engaged in uh, cross-cultural ministry or seeking to share with people of other faiths, is the way in which Paul doesn't instantly, doesn't go in and disrespect the Athenian worldview, but engages with it, beginning where they are. I see that you're very religious in, in all sorts of ways. In fact, I saw an altar to the unknown God, and he starts where they are, but then he doesn't shy away from proclaiming and declaring the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I think that there are encounters with uh, other faiths, clearly not with Islam, and clearly not with Buddhist or Hindu or these other major Eastern faiths, but certainly with Greek philosophy, with Roman emperor worship. There's a lot about the occult, isn't there, in the book of Acts? You see with various sorcerers um, and the the silver worker and Artemis and all these, there's lots going on there in the world of the New Testament that shows it to be able to teach us things about how we engage with people of other belief systems. Coming closer to the present day, we've seen in the West in particular over the last 200 years, an increasing recognition of the depth of religious diversity in culture, both to do with strength of other faiths as well as decline of institutional Christianity. I wonder if you could just give us a brief overview about the way in which the church in the West has responded to that. Yeah, really interesting question and obviously changing all the time. As you say, Philip, you know, you talk about 200 years and, and that's true. That would be the start of perhaps the, the Protestant missionary effort. But in terms of engaging with people in the West, Although there were people uh, from other faiths and other cultures present in the UK before the Second World War, it really is from the Second World War onwards that the rate of uh, change, the rate of immigration, the rate of migration has hugely increased. I think it was a former Archbishop of York who said that prior to the Second World War, other faiths were kind of just all over there. You don't really need to think about it. Maybe the weird missionary types who go over there that's their preserve. But for most of us, we're not really going to engage with people or meet people of other faiths. And all that has changed quite dramatically in the globalized world in which we live now. Obviously, there's a rapid increase in immigration of much needed workers coming in the 50s and 60s, the origin of the Pakistani British community. And then a huge rate of increase during the 90s and noughties with the European Union freedom of movement huge incoming of people from other cultural backgrounds. And so we are now very much accustomed to living in a more, far more multicultural society. But one observation I would have is that when I go around speaking in churches, the number of people who are not British in their terminology, they vastly overestimate it. People vastly overestimate the number of Muslims who live in Britain. You know, people think it's 15 or 20 percent, whereas it's, it's not even 5 percent of the UK population would be Muslim. So there is this sort of fear, ignorance, media driven about immigration, changing our way of life. And that finds its way, sadly, into the church. 
that, you know, we're having our lovely Christian country ruined by these people of other faiths and we need to resist it. And it creates a, a suspicion, a fear, in the worst situations, a hatred of people of other faiths. And so the church in the West has got a lot of work to do to overcome decades of racism, decades of discrimination, decades, I would say, of avoidance. Now, of course, there are notable exceptions to this. There are some wonderful models when you do the research within the UK of churches who are very engaged multiculturally, who are very engaged with their local neighborhoods. So I'm grossly overgeneralizing. But I would say that engagement with people from other faiths in the British church at the moment is quite poor. It's certainly reactive rather than proactive. So you may have discovered or you've read about the huge movement of Chinese students who come to the UK. That started happening in the mid-90s. And most churches in the cities, certainly university cities, have got some sort of international student ministry going on where there are Chinese people who are finding faith in Jesus Christ. And we saw many of these in our time in Dundee before we even went to China. And yet at the same time, there are large populations of of British-born Bangladesh-origin Muslims who are completely ignored or unengaged by churches because they don't know what to do, because they're harder. They're harder to meet. They seem less responsive. And so we focus on the more responsive. You've thrown out a significant challenge there for the British church, and we'll come back to that in a moment if we can, Gerard. I'd like to go back, though, to first theological principles about one of the most challenging questions around religious diversity and other faiths, which is the the question of salvation. And I know that you've spoken about generally three types of response that might be kind of traced in terms of how we might think of other faiths in relation to salvation. Can you just outline what those three areas are and kind of what's at stake theologically in them? It's a vital question. And anybody thinking about engaging people of other faiths needs to examine this themselves and work out where they uh, stand on this on this question. There's so much, Philip, theologically at stake here. The nature of God, the nature of revelation, the authority of the Bible, the uniqueness of Christ, the nature and purpose of salvation. All these different world faiths would think very differently about each of those theological foundations that I would say. I approach it very much from taking the existence of a creator God as a given and that he's chosen to reveal himself to mankind. But these two are not a given for everybody who's thinking about this. So the three particular positions that you're referring to would be exclusivism, pluralism, and inclusivism. They will be the three. Now, there's been a lot of critiques of this model, but with all its flaws, it's still quite a helpful rubric through which to look at different approaches to people of other faiths, your own feelings about the role of other faiths. So the traditional position of the church throughout most of its history is the exclusivist position. And that means that salvation is only found, is only available in Jesus Christ. And anybody outside of Christ would be eternally lost. Uh, Exclusivists would be seen to have a pretty negative view of other faiths. Not an entirely negative view. It's don't want to caricature exclusivism 
as being really arrogant and really dis disrespectful. There's a soft exclusivism which can see good things in other faiths and yet still hold to that principle that you need to come to Jesus Christ, the only way of salvation, and put your trust in him, in his cross, in his resurrection. And only that way can you be certain to have salvation. That would be the exclusivist view. And as I say, it was dominant really until about 200 years ago. The other extreme, if you want to use that word, would be the view of the pluralist, the religious pluralist, that the idea would be that no one religion can claim any superiority over any other. All religions are just different perceptions of the same one truth. And salvation can be found in any of these faiths. In fact, salvation could be found in all of these faiths. They're all circling around the divine. And so Christianity is one of the ways in which you can find God, but it's not the only way at all. And it sees a real strong role of any and all religions at helping humans seek after the divine. Now, whether the divine is a personal God or whether it's a presence or a force is very debatable. One of the weaknesses of pluralism, in my view, is that it's quite uh, abstract about what is at the center that all these faiths are circulating round. But a pluralist position, in my view, re requires a very low view of scripture and a sub-Christian uh, theology, certainly a very sub-Christian Christology. So I would struggle in the pluralist area. Now, the middle ground, which isn't really an intermediate position, although it's often presented as such, is inclusivism, trying to hold together these two truths that Christ's salvific work is unique, and yet God is somehow at work in all religions. And so it's, inclusivism is a very broad group of, uh, of isms, uh, and you find different positions on that spectrum. But basically, it is possible to find salvation in your own faith, because you can only be saved by Christ, Christ must somehow be saving you through those other faiths. That's the bottom line as to where it sits. Sometimes it's referred to as, a, as the anonymous work of Christ or the grace of God at work in Christ in these other religions, even though they don't realize that it is Christ who is saving them. And this caricatures a little bit, but it, it is the majority position within the post-Vatican II Catholic Church. And I read it in many mainstream Protestant denominations too, would lean more towards an inclusivist position than to a, a soft or a hard exclusivist position. I can understand how it would therefore follow that some aspects of how you might engage with people of other faiths would be affected by where you land on that spectrum, Gerard. But I imagine from the challenge you gave earlier that there are some models of engagement with religious diversity in the UK today and indeed in other cultures that apply whatever position you take on that salvation question that just are about being good neighbours, good friends and not withdrawing, if you like, into a Christian ghetto. Whichever view you take on the salvation question, what are the faithful ways that Christians can be working, befriending people of other faiths in a way that's consistent with their own worldview? Yeah, brilliant question. And it kind of sums up what I feel my ministry is to try and encourage this amongst people of all positions. Because 
I want to sum it up really as saying we need to know what it means to be a better neighbor. How can we be better neighbors? Um, we simply have to be the ones, in my view, who cross the road to make contact with people. We have to be the initiators of good, friendly, social relationships with people who are other than us. For me to demonstrate the love of Christ and to be a witness to Jesus Christ, it, it demands me to move and take action. And I think it's an absolute tragedy that people in our country can grow up uh, in this uh, Christian or post-Christian Britain and yet never meet a Christian and yet never be invited by a Christian into their home and never ever hear or learn anything about Christianity other than what they are told in their own religious tradition, which is not always accurate. And so I think that we really do need to be challenged in this area. I usually encourage people to overcome their fears and prejudices. Sometimes people would say, you know, if, if I want to be friends with Muslims, how much do I need to know about Islam? And when you have somebody like me who likes to teach on Islam, that makes them feel that, you know, you need to take my course before you can go and do this. And I, I want to say right at the beginning, you don't actually need to know anything about Islam. In fact, why don't you go and find out from your neighbor, if you're interested in what Islam is and what it means for your next door neighbor who might be Bangladeshi, the best way is not to read a book, but to knock on the door and, and introduce yourself and say, you know, I'm your next door neighbor. I very interested in finding out what life is like for you as a Muslim. I want to understand Islam better. I want to know how we can be better friends. And I think that sort of openness and humble learning attitude is really commendable, far more so than I know what you believe and why you're wrong. This is a very unhelpful attitude to have, and you're not going to make friends and influence people very well in that way. So I would say, you know, clearly uh, what I find as I go around the UK, it, it is fear that paralyzes most Christians about approaching Muslims. Sometimes that's fear that's media generated and completely unfair, but more usually it's fear of giving offense. We're terrified in Britain of saying anything that could be offensive. And so we just don't bother saying anything at all. We're worried that we might do something or say something that upsets or offends our Muslim neighbor. And I completely understand that. And we want to be sensitive. But at the moment, we're just ignoring people and walking by on the other side and not even attempting any kind of engagement. Be polite. Ask for help. I don't want to offend you. Can I invite you to my home? Would you be able to do that? How can I make it easier for you to come to my home? Just being very open with people. Yeah, I think that's a critical thing. The one other thing I would say on this that I've discovered is that we have lost the ability, I think, in our generation uh, to disagree with people well, to disagree respectfully. Um, so one of the differences that your position on this spectrum of inclusivism, exclusivism and pluralism brings is the goal of your friendship. Now, the goal of my friendship is to be a friend and to be a neighbor, but my heart says I want to have the opportunity of introducing Jesus Christ to my neighbor. Uh, but that instantly starts to trample over some very significant differences between our two faiths. 
And I think we have to learn and practice how can we respectfully engage with somebody that we don't agree with and then remain friends afterwards. And I think social media and the Twitter sphere has got a lot to answer for in making it unable for us to disagree well. In order to do that, Gerard, in order to disagree well, what are the theological character traits that are required to do that, to be a good neighbour in a multicultural, multi-faith context? I think... For me, first and foremost, is the recognition that God is the God of all the world, that God is a global God, and that each of these individual people that I meet, whatever their faith background, is loved and valued and precious to him. That would be the first absolutely clear foundational principle I would have. The second would be that nobody comes to Christ unless, uh, comes to God unless the Father draws him. So the idea that people used to criticize me and say, you spend your time converting Muslims or trying to convert Muslims. And I would very quickly respond and say, do you know, I can't convert anybody. God alone can bring a conviction of sin. God alone is at work in people. I have a role to play as a witness, but I'm not trying to put pressure on or coerce anybody. My, my goal of my friendship is not to convert the Muslim, but to be a good neighbor and to be a good witness. So to see that God is at work in all peoples, in all cultures, and at some level, God is at work in all religions to draw people to himself by coming to Christ. Holding that theological principle enables me to befriend people and not feel the pressure of, oh, I've got to get to a Jesus conversation really quickly. Just not to be stressed by that, but to actually just be a friend, be a neighbor, be a listening ear. Because my Pakistani neighbors are very isolated from the rest of white British society, shall we call it. And I want to be a bridge for them. I want to hear the struggles that they have. I want to be concerned about the Islamophobia that they experience, about the discrimination that they feel. I want to be their friend uh, because I want to demonstrate the love that God has for each of them. So I think these are probably the things I would say. Humility, patience, love, compassion, and yet at the same time as these, to be bold and to be clear in your witness and persistence in your friendships. So you have to hold them both together. You need to be, be humble and yet be willing to speak. My neighbors want to know what I believe. Muslims want to know what I believe far more than non-Muslim white British people do. Muslims will ask me, what do you believe? So that's quite an exciting thing, to quite an easy opening to share what you believe when somebody asks you directly, what do you believe? I wonder, you talked earlier about the way in which the church is guilty of decades of racism, discrimination, avoidance. And you've just mentioned there about the need to understand the Islamophobia. What's the theological value of justice and therefore seeking justice for your neighbour as part of living well among people of other faiths yeah i think that's that's clearly yeah clearly part of it philip i think one of the struggles i have in that area is even though i have 
close Muslim friends. And I actually work with an imam who works for a Muslim charity here. Uh, not that we've seen each other much this year, but he is the guy that I would ask about what is it to grow up as a Muslim in Britain. And he is very politically engaged, far more politically engaged, actually, than I am. And it, it has made me question quite a lot whether or not I should be more politically engaged in seeking justice. You know, the local government elections next week, and there's a big sign outside my house for my local councillor, who I've met, who's a Muslim guy, Sheikh Allah, and he's brilliant. I speak with him about the plight of asylum seekers and the desperate houses that they're given here in Huddersfield. So at that level, one is beginning to protest about the way in which people are treated. Personally, I think I have, I have to go far further with this. And quite probably, many Christians also need to be challenged about how politically engaged do I need to be to be able to make my town, my city, a place that's fair for all people to live in, regardless of their faith or ethnic background. But we have a long way to go with that. You've perhaps already hinted the answer to this question. It may follow on from what we've just discussed, Gerard. But I wonder how your own study of different faiths and religious traditions has impacted on your own walk and discipleship with Jesus Christ? Far more than I thought it would, if I'm honest. You know, I think you begin this quest thinking, how am I going to help all these people see that they're wrong? Which is a very young man's sort of approach to it. And then I discover when I'm in China, Muslim friends who've got very active prayer lives, Muslim friends who are encountering God in a way I don't think they should be allowed to. You know, as a young man, it's a ridiculous thing to say, but it doesn't really fit with what I had imagined it would be like. And so one of the ways it's changed my understanding is that I am learning things about my own faith, my own walk with God uh, through my interaction with Muslims, with Buddhists particularly. And yet, I have to say, at the same time, when I probe deeply with friends and we explore their scriptures and their doctrines and we talk at a deep level, I always come back to how thankful I am for the grace of God shown to me in the Lord Jesus Christ. The actual good news of the gospel, that he has done this for me. He has taken my sin. He has placed it upon Jesus. And I am safe. And I'm in a relationship with God that doesn't look anything like, actually, the relationship even of my closest Muslim friend. His relationship to Allah is always one of master and servant. He would say that himself. Whereas we have the privilege of the father-child relationship. So it both challenges me in my faith, but it also is a real assurance to me of the greatness of the gospel that we have received and makes me yet more keen to be able to explain and express this to my Muslim friends to help them see actually what Christianity is. Gerald Charles, thank you very much indeed for appearing on Talking Theology. You're very welcome. Nice to chat to you. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal, Durham. Cranmahal is a theological college within St John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahal.com. <laughs>